Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. (laughs) Because politics needed a (laughs) rebrand. Should we get into it? I guess we should. That was our warm up. But welcome back to Girl on the Gov, the podcast. I don't think that's going to make it in the episode because I just ranted about my Miami trip, creepy Miami men, and getting pulled over by U.S. Border Patrol on a boat, being caught in a tropical storm on a boat. But that's the Spark Notes version. So we'll move on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maddie had some traumas, some traumas and some dramas. But the good news is she's in one piece. In so we we will take that. I know. Here I am. Well, welcome back again. Happy Wednesday. It's another climate episode for our amazing climate month. Don't forget, though, for this month to submit your climate questions. We've gotten a few really good ones. I'm excited to ask. This week, we didn't have any that came in time for our guests for this week. But next week, we will definitely be asking those questions you guys submitted. Yeah. Well, in some other news some girl in the gov news we are launching a brand ambassador program so excited mazel to us little claps little snaps whatever you do do it we are still working through some of of course the finer details but we want to hear from you guys what you guys want from a brand ambassador program yeah what you also don't want from a brand ambassador program right like this is for you guys as much as it is for us and we want to bring you guys further into the girl in the gov community So that's really what sort of the idea behind this is to connect, to network, to help bring everyone into the political space and of course provide that like networking arm that's super important for a lot of you that I know or that we know want to get into the political space in terms of career and whatnot. So that's what we're looking to provide. More details to come, but in the meantime, we have a link in our bio below for this episode that allows you to submit some of your information. You'll get on our brand ambassador list and we should be in touch in the coming weeks with more information. So, you know, do it, do it, do it. And this is like a great time, a great little opportunity to build out that resume. Yes. Rumor has it, those are important. I've heard. I've Just, heard that too. It's like, I know, it's crazy, it's everywhere. Yeah, oh my God. Well, no, this is like super exciting. We've connected with like so many amazing young women who are just interested in what we're doing or want to work in the political space and we think it'd be a fun way to connect people connect you guys to our network if you want to work in the political space if you want professional building again slapping this on that resume so definitely go sign up give us your info and also like please let us know like what you would like out of a brand ambassador program obviously another big part of that is like social media and content and all that fun stuff so let us know but Let's get into it with our guest today because we have 
quite the lively conversation. It's kind of like a different vibe too than last week. I think last week was so cool because we were so like concrete, get the facts with Aaron. This week is like really abstract, makes you really like think outside of the box, which I think is fun. So do you want to introduce our guest? Yeah. So our guest of the week is Dr. Katherine Wilkinson, and she is, besides brilliant, so well-versed on all things climate, but from a social science lens. So she really breathed life into how to understand climate just outside of even the classic facts, what is climate change and whatnot. She brings us to a whole nother dimension of understanding its impact and where we see change, where we don't see change and why that is. So that means talking about the climate and women, climate and feminism, climate and intersectionality. I could throw this so many different ways, but the point really at the end of the day is that climate touches everything and she draws a really deep picture of how that is, why that is, and how that needs to change. So let's get into it. Buckle up, ladies and gentlemen. This is going to be a great episode. So without further ado, here is Dr. Katherine Wilkinson. So... I have had like a super zigzaggy path. I'm kind of a hopeless interdisciplinarian. So I have touched climate from lots of different angles, including academia and research, including small nonprofits, big nonprofits, private sector, consulting. I've never worked in government. That's probably the one, like the one climate decision-making space I've never touched. And a lot of the work that I do has to do with sort of framing, messaging, shaping narratives, lots of writing. I co-host a podcast. I do lots of speaking. So in a lot of ways, I think about myself as kind of a, a messenger and an educator beyond the classroom. Every now and again, I teach a, a college class, but mostly I think about kind of being a, you know, sort of like a teacher in in the world. And a lot of my work also has to do with like synthesizing and translating. So I really like to kind of straddle spaces that don't quite know how to talk to each other. Anyway, that's all very vague. We'll get into get into some more some more specifics. Yeah. And I think one of the specifics that would be the perfect time here is your work with the All We Can Save project. Tell us a little bit more about that. How did it get started? What's its mission? Yeah. So the All We Can Save project is an outgrowth of a few years now of collaboration that Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson and I have been doing. We met in late 2018 on Twitter. <laughs> Where else do you meet your partner in good trouble these days? We met on we Instagram. Met on Insta. See, there you go. You just, you know, you just don't know. And pretty much immediately we knew that we wanted to collaborate. And that has looked like kind of co-convening a retreat for women climate leaders. It looked like, you know, developing the idea for and then bringing to life the best-selling anthology, All We Can Save. But we have this shared desire to make climate work better for women because we haven't always had a great experience being women in climate and she's black. And so there are both race and gender dimensions in in her experiences in the movement. And so 
we wanted to think about how we could make some contribution to making this the biggest, strongest team possible, because we know that's what it's going to take to solve a challenge as big and complex as the climate crisis. So we are a very new nonprofit, but our work is all about how do we build power and joy for women leading on climate so that we can nurture a just and livable future. And we're doing that through communication efforts like the book, All We Can Save. We've developed All We Can Save reading circles to try to support folks to do some of that learning and dialogue and community building that's so important. And we're just getting ready to dive into some work on curriculum, curricular learning resources, and a virtual communal mentoring series that we're super stoked about. So I love that. Oh my God. Incredible. I'm interested to hear more about, you know, women in climate and what that all means and the challenges that come with that. But first we did want to ask you about hashtag climate squads. So what are these and how do they work? (laughs) Yeah. So that was one of Ayana's creations. And yeah, I mean, we have felt so much loneliness in climate work, you know, that it is often like you're taking on this massive issue. There's a lot of losing, right? It often feels like the boulder is rolling back down the mountain. And yet, like, this is the work of our lifetimes. And so how do we stay in the work? And how do we do the work better? And we both feel like we have to do that as a team. Like we have to have great collaborators, great partnership. We have to have community. And so we wanted to think about how the book All We Can Save could be not just like a snapshot of 60 different women's perspectives and essays and poetry and art on the challenges we face and where we go from here. But we also wanted to like have that happen with readers, right? So We created all we can save circles so that folks can go through the 10 sections of the book and really kind of have more expansive and generous conversation about what does all of this mean? And in particular, like what might it mean for me and what might it mean for us? And to, yeah, to kind of do that relational work that we know is really important in social movements really in any movement for social change, but oftentimes like we don't take the time, right? We don't make the space for it. And yeah, so we we hope that all we can save circles are one of those spaces where folks can, yeah, get their climate squads together or build their climate squads or deepen those relationships and yeah, and and kind of carry that, carry that forward. Amazing. And it's just like something you don't think about too, obviously like I'm sure it's also because when you think of climate, it is such like an overwhelming, huge issue, the issue of our lifetimes, like you said. So it's, you know, not always on front of mind to think about all the intersections in that and, you know, how it affects different people. So, I mean, I love that we're highlighting that. And even too, like whenever we think about like, okay, like where you are, like Maddie's in California, we're automatically thinking about wildfires and then I'm over in New York and we're thinking about, okay, hurricanes and flooding and like Manhattan drowning. So like, you know, I think, you know, you definitely think about like what's relational to your exact area, but like, it's very easy to forget what's outside of your little bubble. So I like, I love the idea of being like, okay, like what else is out there? Like, what am I not thinking about? Like, 
obviously there's other people out there and they have different experiences. Like, how do I like think about all of those? Totally. And, and that's, you know, that was part of why we were so excited to do an anthology because we need a kaleidoscope, right? Like one person's perspective on this is not sufficient. I'm probably not going to pick up 60 books by 60 different people, but one book, right, that lets you kind of keep turning the kaleidoscope and seeing it a little bit differently. Oh, this is what it means from a legal perspective. Oh, this is what it means for cultural strategy and storytelling. Oh, this is what it means from a youth perspective. Oh, this is what it means from, you know, a veteran of doing this work in the federal government. And what's been so cool is to hear from people that this book has nourished them and kind of shored them up, but it's also helping people find their place. And I think that's really hard to do alone, right? Like, I don't recommend like, you know, sitting alone <laughs> in, you know, in your home thinking about the climate crisis and trying to figure out like, what can I little me do? Whenever you're asking that question, what can I do? The best thing to do is to immediately change it to what can we do? Because going it alone is just not, it's not going to work. And like, it's not really like emotionally a good call. (laughs) It's not emotionally sustainable by any means. I love that, you know, kaleidoscope analogy, because I think when you think about climate, you think of it politically and you think of the way it's been painted politically in the way it's as always in politics, very black and white, like which side do you pick kind of thing. But when you think about climate, there is really a kaleidoscope to look at. I mean, that's literally, we try to do that in a very micro way this month with climate and trying to hit as many different, like, you know, intersections, like we talked about within that from environmental justice to what you're doing to a young activist. We're trying to like reach as many people as we can in our little climate month. And again, definitely going to continue on (laughs) in the future to cover all these different intersections because they're so important. But I really love that analogy. And I was like, oh, we're kind of trying to do that. Okay. Yeah, it totally sounds like you're doing that. And that's part of why we're doing the work that we're doing, because like a relatively small group of mostly white men have defined a lot of like sort of climate discourse, right? How do we understand the problem? What do we think the solutions are? And that we need them, right? We definitely want them on the team, but that's not sufficient because we're each bringing different lenses with us, right? To how we make sense of this and what we think the paths forward could or should be. And so, you know, we need a big tent of perspectives helping us to to figure that out. Definitely. Oh, yeah. Wow, we're we're twinning again. You know, it's we're funny. always literally in sync. Like I think we both owe each other a hundred sodas. But we did want to call out the fact that you were 2019 Time Magazine's 15 Women Who Will Save the World. Like when can yeah, I no get pressure. that? Ti- when can I get that title? Because <laughs> what? Can you tell us about that? Like what was that like? Yeah, I mean that was bananas. No pressure, and, no pressure. Yeah, and seriously no pressure. No, I mean it was <laughs> it was really exciting to see time shine a light specifically. I think that was their first all climate issue first of all, and then to shine a light on women who are leading on climate in lots of different ways from all different parts of the world. And I think you know, no list is going to be long enough to capture 
the incredible community of people that are showing up in this moment. But I hope that lists like that can help folks begin to see themselves, right, in in this like ecosystem of transformation, because literally whatever superpower you have, we need it. And and so I really liked that that list was like, it was such a good, it was such a good cross section of, of folks doing this work in lots of different ways. And, you know, those lists are always they always tell slightly the wrong story in the sense that this is not a story of heroes. This is not a story of individuals. It really is a story of collectives, but that's just like not how media works. You know, like there are lists of people. And so I always feel a bit like bummed about great work that doesn't get those kinds of accolades. But as Ayana's mom says, well, somebody's got to be on those lists. (laughs) They've got to put someone on there. (laughs) No, it's definitely a proud moment. But yeah, it's important to always reflect and be like, yeah, there are like so many others that are doing this work too. And just to continue to uplift that, I think that's the best thing you could do. But it's amazing you were honored in that way. So congrats. (laughs) Thank you. No, I was really, I was really floored. And my parents, of course, were like really delighted. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure. Did they get it like blown up, framed? Is it in the house? Many copies, very many copies of the same magazine. (laughs) I love that. But okay, let's also kind of like float back to women in leadership and climate change, right? Which we're sort of talking through, but at a larger level and talking about perspectives. Why is it so important for us to have women perspectives in this particular conversation? Yeah. So it's pretty cool, actually, that we have a growing body of research and social science data that actually tells us that climate outcomes are better. We do a better job for the planet when women are leading. So we see this, for example, in in national legislatures. Women are more likely to support environmental laws and stricter laws. They're more likely to support passing, you know, international environmental treaties like the ones we have on on climate. We see that kind of even if you look to the smallest local scale, policy outcomes are better when there's gender parity and participation. So it's pretty cool, actually, that in all of these different ways, we see this. But right now, if you look at basically any climate decision-making space from UN climate negotiations to finance, engineering, business, big nonprofit organizations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, there's not gender parity. So women are underrepresented across the board in all of these spaces. So we've got this like catch 22, right? That we know outcomes are better when women are present and leading and they're not. (laughs) And so we've got to, we've got to try to close that gap, both because that's just fair, but also because it's more effective. And when you start to look at the impacts of climate change, They hit women and girls, particularly women and girls in the global south, women and girls who live in rural areas, women and girls of color, indigenous women and girls. The impacts of climate change don't hit everyone equally. 
the Pentagon has a great term. They coined this term, I think in 2014, calling climate change a threat multiplier. And it's the Pentagon, right? So they're thinking about the national security implications of climate change for the US. But it's actually a term that's really helpful to think about more broadly, right? That where there are existing injustices, vulnerabilities, or threats in our current global society, climate change takes almost all of those and makes them worse. And so if you have, you know, if you have gender disparities that exist today, you can expect that women and girls and non-binary folks are going to bear a greater brunt of impacts than folks who have more privilege. Same is true along the lines of race, same is true along the lines of, right, the sort of the richest of the rich who are causing most of the problem and folks who, you know, who are living in poverty who have had very, very little to do with causing the problem. And yet, they have the least capacity to cope. And in lots of parts of the world, that's where climate impacts are are hitting hardest. So it's just an issue of unfairness and injustice kind of every time you turn around and look at another piece of the story. And folks who are closer to the experiences of the problem have to be at the heart of the solutions, right? And we have to be thinking about solutions that are multi-solving for these challenges and not just going like, oh, can some guys in Silicon Valley make a bunch of money figuring out like how to suck carbon dioxide of the, out of the atmosphere? Like Maybe that will be a piece of the puzzle, right? But that is not the whole puzzle. And, and we lose, right? We just lose the perspective on what are the best ways forward when the folks who kind of have the least to lose, right? The least skin in the game. And that's actually one of the particularly interesting things that women are less likely to take on outsized risk or impose it on others. But white guys are particularly down for that. (laughs) And that's like, that's a challenge, right? When we're talking about this big planetary gamble that we're in. Yeah, I think, you know, we, we have some work to do to getting to that point and like asking more questions and being more involved and making sure we're like a part of these conversations. So it's really great to know that you are working to open those doors and making sure that that support exists because that's half half the battle is feeling supported, feeling empowered and knowing that like there are people behind you that will push you forward. Like you're not in it alone. And I think it goes back to the earlier comment about being a teen. Totally. We know from polling data that now like a vast majority of Americans understand that climate change is happening. A vast majority of Americans think we should be doing more, particularly around clean and renewable energy. But there are lots of folks who are kind of sitting on the sidelines right now, right? Because I think climate hasn't always felt like the most welcoming (laughs) of issues, right? Like, do you have a 200 slide PowerPoint presentation where you can give me all your facts? Like, that's kind of been a little bit of the vibe. And I think, you know, there's been a very deliberate effort to make this issue politically contentious. We don't have to go into all of the weeds of it, but suffice it to say, like an incredible PR campaign funded by the fossil fuel industry to make folks think 
this isn't happening, or maybe it's not happening, or maybe it's not humans, or maybe we can't afford to do anything about it. All of those things are just, you know, it's just been years of misinformation, but people have that uncle that like, they don't want to have to talk to about this at Thanksgiving. Right. And so you kind of just step back, but that's part of what we're trying to change, right. To make this really welcoming and to sort of help folks know that there is a very small crowd of people who, you know, just don't want to acknowledge the science of climate change, which is incredible. Like the amount of research that's been done on this is mind boggling. It's about 7% of the American population that think this isn't a thing. Most of them are older, white, conservative guys. And I think we just have to sort of accept that like that camp may not be super movable, but let's think about, you know, the three quarters of people that are in the middle and and just haven't maybe gotten the right invitation yet yeah it's wild I was just when you were saying that I was just thinking about like I forget what year it was but it's one of my earliest memories of when the inconvenient truth came out do you remember that movie? Oh, yeah. And that was like the... Oh, yeah. Was that like the first time people realized that climate change could be happening? I feel or like, like, yeah. I feel like, at least for me, that was like literally my earliest it was memory. really big... My mom was like bringing yeah. me to all these like viewing parties about it. And I was like... That's <laughs> just like my earliest memory. My mom like bringing me to these like random ladies' house to like watch the Inconvenient Truth <laughs> together. <laughs> but I felt like that was like the first time people were talking about climate change, or at least that I was aware of. But... And now we're still here and we're still like back then. It was what, like 2000 maybe or something? Yeah, I think it and came out. And we're still out, here. I think it was maybe 2006 when it came out. Maybe something like that. Could have been earlier. 2006. Oh, oh my God, nice. Okay, so I wasn't as young as I thought. <laughs> Clearly very formative memories. <laughs> yes, it was. Like here I am today, you know. But the point is, I was just like, it's crazy how – It has been around for so long. Yeah. And do you want to know what's really bananas? Oh, yes. We have (laughs) understood the link between carbon dioxide and heat trapping gases and planetary warming since the 1850s. Stop it. 1850s? I just got the chills. I feel like my point was really dumb because I was acting as if like like, climate change. But that's the marketing (laughs) of it, right? Totally. And this is like... You know, this is the insanely frustrating thing that like scientists were doing this work all the way back then. We actually open all we can save with a story of this woman, Eunice Newton Foote, who published a paper in 1856 about this. Oh. Interestingly, she was also an early campaigner for women's rights and she signed the Seneca Falls Declaration. Oh, so of course she we did. Think Eunice oh. is like quite a cool Quite a cool story. So did her husband. He was apparently quite a cool dude too. But yeah, but then she like disappeared from the history books. And then oil companies actually were doing really groundbreaking research on climate in the 1970s. So Exxon has known exactly where we were heading, like made eerily accurate predictions for where we would be in terms of global warming in 2020, right? But like 
people have not been getting the right information, good information. They've been getting played. They've been getting duped. Yeah. And like an inconvenient truth, I think, was what one of the first kind of pop culture breakthroughs on on climate. So it's been a long road. (laughs) The fact that it's also like 7% is like the, the Debbie Downers, like negative Nancy's on this is insane. It goes to show like how such a little population can make huge amount of noise if they have the right amount of access to funds, essentially. Totally. Access to funds, very active on Twitter. <laughs> Mind-blowing fact. I cannot thank you enough for telling me that fact because that is crazy. It's like, crazy and like wow. will make you feel uh, crazy. <laughs> now I actually got the chills and I I don't know. I might need to like go into recovery after this. But okay, so... <laughs> So we want to talk about Project Drawdown. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Also, where, you know, the term drawdown even comes from and how that relates to all of this. Can you give us the rundown? Totally. Excellent counterpoint to talking about the problem, because that was really the reason for being of Project Drawdown, the reason that the, the project got started to begin with, which was what's in the toolbox? right? What are the solutions, the technologies and practices that we already have? They're proven, they're working, we've got good data about them. And if we were to get really serious and put them to work as kind of widely and quickly as possible, how much of this problem could they solve, right? Can we turn this mess around with tools that are already in the toolbox was basically the question and the fancy term for turn this mess around is drawdown. So if you think about we have this growing concentration of heat trapping pollution in the atmosphere, which basically creates kind of a thicker blanket around the earth, like the greenhouse effect is a good thing. It's what makes this planet livable. But we've basically cranked up the greenhouse effect by sending lots of carbon dioxide, methane, and other heat-trapping gases up there. Drawdown refers to the point in time in the future that we might actually stop sending those gases up and that that concentration could begin to come down year after year. And that means we have to reduce our sources of climate pollution to zero as quickly as possible from electricity, transportation, buildings, industry, all the various things we do on land, cutting down forests, the way we grow our food, like we've got to fix all of that. That's not enough to get us to drawdown. If we want to get to drawdown, we also have to basically collaborate with nature to bring some of that excess carbon dioxide back home. So we can do that through restoring forests and other ecosystems that absorb carbon dioxide. We can do that through better agriculture practices that also soil should be a big storehouse of carbon. We've released a lot of that through industrial agriculture, but we can kind of to some extent turn that around. And that's also where, you know, some of the <laughs> some of the carbon dioxide sucking machines that that folks are working on, right, may also play a role kind of augmenting what what nature is able to do. So I think about drawdown as like a turning point back, like 
by no means would the job be done at that point, but we would be kind of heading back towards balance with the planet's living systems. And Project Drawdown, I joined the team back in 2016 to take the lead on writing the book that we published in 2017, which is called Drawdown. And then I led the kind of second big publication that the organization did, which came out almost exactly a year ago. It's called The Drawdown Review. And if you want sort of a really quick and also very beautifully designed overview of what do all the climate solutions look like and how much can they help, that is kind of the number one resource for that. And that I'll just you can download it. You can download the Drawdown for free in English and French and Spanish from drawdown.org. Amazing. Wow. So we do want to get into our I Have a Stupid Question segment, because while we have talked about, you know, this very complex, clearly issue of climate change, we do want to bring it back down, like down, down, down to the basics here and make sure people have, you know, the right definitions, right facts on everything. So can you kind of give us the rundown of what evidence we have to show the climate's changing? What does that even mean, like climate, and also how it was like once called global warming? How is that different? So, and like, how also do we know that humans are even causing all of this? Like, kind of the basic definition and understanding of climate change. Yeah, cool. Um, so, the first thing I'll just say if folks kind of want to dig deeper into any of these questions, I cannot recommend highly enough the work of another Catherine in climate. She spells her name the same way as me, Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, who is a climate scientist. I'm a social scientist by training, so take that with, with a grain of salt. And she has this great series of videos called Global Weirding. And they basically take on like every major question that people have about climate change, kind of from you know, super basic, how do we know this is happening all the way through? So definitely check out Global Weirding and be super charmed by Catherine Hayhoe. She is she is amazing. But yeah, so we have from about 1850, same time as Eunice was doing her thing, we have temperature records, right? So we can actually track like with the use of thermometers how global temperature has changed during that time but we can also go way back in time using what are called like climate proxies so basically sources of data that tell us about the climate of centuries and and millennia gone by so we can look at tree rings, we can look at ice cores to, to be able to actually see like what the kind of what the composition of the atmosphere was in the past. So we have lots of different data sets that kind of tell us in different ways that the earth is warming. It is warming out of sync with what kind of natural cycles would be right now. And scientists have, you know, have looked at kind of, well, what would the different, quote unquote, natural causes be for this, ruled those out. And we know that the thing we've been doing since the mid 19th century to today is that we've been digging up and burning a lot of carbon. That's been the thing that has really 
has really changed things. And so there are folks who are looking just at that, right, at kind of the addition of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. But then we can start to look at all of the different impacts that that is having, right, beyond just temperature. And this is how I like to think about the difference between global warming and climate change, is global warming is just telling us that the globe is warming. (laughs) And climate change is all of the stuff that cascades out of that warming from more intense droughts to more intense downpours, you know, the the melting of ice and sea level rise, right? So then there are all of these different fields looking at how this is shaking out in real time, what it's meaning for changes to ecosystems and all of the species that call those places home. And then it just it just starts to cascade and all of a sudden it's like climate change is it's everywhere but i think you know the thing to know is that the scientific consensus could not be stronger if you want to go into the weeds of climate science you know you could do it for the rest of your life there's so much good work that has been done but it's also a pretty harrowing space to spend time because pretty much daily we have a new report about how climate change is causing harm to human communities and all sorts of other beings that we share this planet with it's like it's 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 heartbreaking to to watch again back to the like don't go it alone yeah oh my <laughs> not, God. not advised <laughs> We do want to move on to climate and gender equality. So there is the statistic that the UN has shared, which notes that 80% of people displaced by climate change are women. So curious as to why this is the case, what makes women more susceptible to the sort of positioning? Like, what's the deal here? Yeah. And we see, we see also gender disparities around who's likely to be injured or killed in an extreme weather disaster also. And this goes back really to the topic we were talking about, about a threat multiplier and who has access to resources, right? So there are, you know, income and wealth disparities along the lines of gender that mean some folks have more resources, for example, to evacuate when something's coming or to be able to rebuild their home or even right, return to a place that has been, has been damaged. There are also some really troubling connections between extreme weather events and gender-based violence and sex trafficking and you know things that you wouldn't necessarily connect to to climate change but when like when everything gets turned upside down right folks who may already be struggling to make ends meet struggling to you know to to have good kind of economic security, et cetera. Like all of that just gets harder. Yeah, the desperation just skyrockets. Yeah. Okay, so next question we want to ask too, like what what are some of the things you can do to like remove some of that <laughs> when it comes to trying to achieve gender equality, especially obviously in the lens of climate change? So whether that's stuff you're doing or like stuff we can all collectively do, how do we remove some of this gender inequality from the climate sphere? Yeah. 
So I think there are a few things. So one is that you know, all of the efforts that are happening to increase the political, social, economic status and empowerment of women and girls, all of that matters for resilience in the face of climate impacts. It also means that when we're thinking specifically about how do we improve resilience or how do we have approaches for adaptation to to climate change, that those need to have a gender lens to them, right? We need to understand that these things are not playing out equally for everyone. I think it means that kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier about sort of who's in the driver's seat of solutions, right? And what do real solutions look like? You know, it means that I think women need to be at the heart of those conversations and decisions and plans. So I get really excited about things like there's a project that Room to Read, which is a girls education NGO that they're working on to actually bring kind of climate justice curriculum into the work that they do so that as girls and then young women are coming through school, they're equipped to be climate leaders going forward. Similarly, lots of great efforts done by organizations like the Women's Environment and Development Organization, We Do, which does a lot of work around making sure that women from the global south are represented in the UN climate negotiations and making that sort of gender constituency like a really strong and and connected voice. So those are just a, a couple a couple of examples, but I definitely want folks to kind of take the point home that a gender equal world is not possible without addressing climate change. And we have to be addressing climate change in ways that account for gender unequal impacts. Yeah, I have a question too, just like when it comes to the even term like climate leader like, what does that really mean? Because I feel like when, <laughs> yeah. no, but when, especially when yeah. we like are talking about it in the political space, like we think about, oh, like maybe AOC is like, you know, working on this legislation. But there's also people like, you know, Greta Thunberg and people who are climate activists, climate leaders. How do you make change on climate if it's not with like policy or legislation or if somebody is like, how do I be a climate leader? Like, what could that entail? Totally. I love this. I love this question because I think, I think that we do tend to have a pretty narrow conception of what a climate leader looks like, right? The like, it looks like Al Gore, <laughs> or it looks like Greta, or it looks like AOC, or it looks like a scientist. And definitely, right, scientists can be climate leaders, policymakers can be climate leaders, certainly activists can be climate, climate leaders. But I really believe that there is opportunity for climate leadership almost anywhere. So there are journalists who are climate leaders. There are artists, right, and kind of culture makers who are climate leaders. There are folks in the world of business, right, who are remaking supply chains to be circular. That's climate leadership. You know, it, it kind of just, like, once you start to open up the notion of who and what a climate leader is, and see that that can happen at the at the scale of a community or the scale of a country. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, actually, who doesn't want to be a climate leader? 
because maybe everyone else can just like step in and, you know, and, and, and get into the work. Yeah. Well, I mean, this always, this reminds me of like Maddie, your comments on working on campaign of the thought of there's a role for everyone. You could be working in the technology department. You could be working in the marketing department. You could be working in the policy end of it. It's like you have different lanes available to you. It doesn't need to be a one size fits all Brandy Melville situation. Like it is (laughs) like there, there's more to, you know, this puzzle than just one piece. So I think maybe that's, yeah, now Maddie's dead, so it's fine. But like, you know, I'm really proud of you. But regardless of that disaster and the disaster that is now climate change, we want to talk about other intersections as well. And of course, racism, white supremacy, indigenous rights, all these things sort of come in the mix here and we haven't given them enough space. And so just want to know for someone that's super unfamiliar with this and this intersection, how do all these things come into the climate change equation? Yeah. So I think the best I think the most helpful place to start with these topics is to think about the roots of the climate crisis, right? Like, why do we have a climate crisis? Okay, we have a climate crisis because we're burning lots of fossil fuel and we're cutting down forests and we're doing industrial agriculture and some other stuff. Okay, what system did all of that grow out of? Well, it's kind of all part and parcel of extractive capitalism. Okay, well, where did extractive capitalism kind of get its start? Well, all of a sudden, we find ourselves, right, looking back maybe 400 years and thinking about the birth of colonialism and slavery, right, this idea of, you know, extracting every piece of value out of land, out of people, right? This has been with us a long time. And I think that the climate crisis is one piece of evidence of how damaging this like extractive way of operating in the world can be. But so is the growing income inequality, right? And the concentration of wealth and power in the hands of a few at the expense of a lot of other people, right? The same system is perpetuating racial violence. The same system, you know, one of our friends who also has an essay in the book, Tara Hauska, right now in Northern Minnesota is on the front lines of trying to stop Tar Sands Pipeline coming through the headwaters of the Mississippi, which is her people's home. This is where, right, indigenous communities have lived on wild rice and in balance with this ecosystem for centuries. And, right, and and Enbridge is like, yeah, but we're coming through. We, we got we to build this pipeline, right? So this is, you know, the, the kind of, taking of land and using of land we see this also in terms of well where are where are fossil fuel operations based right where are coal fired power plants based well often they're in communities of color who don't have the political power the resources etc to you know to 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 stop those things so First of all, we see all of this entanglement in the root causes of the challenge, right, from way back to to present day. 
And then I think it comes back to some of the same things that we were talking about in terms of threat multipliers, who's experiencing a preponderance of impacts, who needs to be at the heart of solutions. And Ayana actually wrote a really beautiful op-ed last summer in the Washington Post on this very thing, on the nexus of, of race and climate. And when we look at the polling data in the US, white folks are the least concerned about climate change. And so actually, like the the sort of historically very white kind of big green led climate movement, not going to win. And so I think that's, you know, that's, that's the other piece of the puzzle is actually understanding who's already on the team, even if maybe the team hasn't felt like a very welcoming place to be. Yeah, totally. But we are running out of time. We do need to wrap up here, but I do want to also give the mic over again so you can plug like literally everything and anything that you have been working on, the book, the podcast. I did not know about the podcast. So exciting. So we just want to know where people can find you and find your work. Sure. Well, if you want to find me, I'm on Twitter and sometimes on Instagram at Dr. K Wilkinson. You can find out more about the All We Can Save project and the book and the circles and all the other stuff we have coming at our website, which is allwecansave.earth. The podcast is called A Matter of Degrees, which you can find on, you know, anywhere you got this pod, you can find A Matter of Degrees. I co-host it with a really amazing woman, Dr. Leah Stokes, who is very funny. And yeah, we have we have fun and it's very explicitly like not wonky it's we're trying to tell stories for the climate curious and it's a narrative podcast so kind of documentary style vibe it's super fun and maybe i will wrap with some a little inspiration which are the lines of poetry that gave all we can save its name adrian rich who was an amazing feminist poet and writer has a poem called natural resources and the last stanza of the poem is, my heart is moved by all I cannot save. So much has been destroyed. I have to cast my lot with those who age after age, perversely, with no extraordinary power, reconstitute the world. And it gives me chill bumps every time I read it or say it, because I think that is the truth, that the world has continually been reconstituted by people with no extraordinary power who simply have come together to do the work that needs doing. And I hope that's I hope that's the moment we're in on climate. Yes. So inspiring and you're so inspiring. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Again, we really appreciate it. My pleasure. Happy Earth Month. Well, for top stories this week, we have quite the slate here. It's bananas. Yeah but all very important. So to start, we have an interesting story because the U.S. is to withdraw all troops from Afghanistan, finally, by September 11th, which we all know that date. It's really what brought us to Afghanistan in the first place. And it's really just crazy also to think about, like, pretty much for my whole life, but there's also probably people who are listening to this episode who, for their entire lives, our country has been at war. Um, in the Middle East. So wild. 
But we are kind of coming to a close of that because President Biden plans to withdraw all troops um, from Afghanistan by September 11th this year, which would be the 20th anniversary of the terrorist attacks on 9-11. So in February of last year, there was actually an agreement with President Donald Trump's administration because the Taliban agreed to halt attacks and hold peace talks with the Afghan government in exchange for U.S. commitment to completely withdrawal by May of this year. So basically, Biden kind of has realized that's not really possible to do it by May. So, you know, he kind of chose this 9-11 date because it's also just significant and symbolic of the reason that American troops were even in Afghanistan to begin with, which was to prevent extremist groups like al-Qaeda from establishing foothold again that could be used to launch attacks against the U.S., so a senior administration official said that we're committing today to go to zero U.S. forces by September 11th. They're hoping possibly well before that, but President Biden said it's going to be hard to meet that May 1 deadline. So just in terms of tactical reasons, it's hard to get those troops out, he said. And if, we're, and if we leave, we're going to do so in a safe and orderly way. So interesting story. Long time coming, but... We'll see what happens. All right. So next story, talking about how business leaders are urging Biden to set ambitious climate goals. Talk about a perfect story for this month and this episode. More than 300 businesses and investors, including the classic giants like Apple, Google, Microsoft, Coca-Cola. But they're calling on the Biden administration to set an ambitious climate change goal that would cut U.S. greenhouse gas emissions by at least 50% which is like below 2005 levels by 2030. So the target of this particular agreement would nearly double the nation's previous commitment and require dramatic changes in the power, transportation, and other sectors. The so-called nationally determined contribution is a key milestone as Biden moves towards his ultimate goal of net zero carbon emissions by, again, 2050. Oh, I'm going to be 55 by then, right? Wow. Yep. 57? Let's hope we have Jesus. a man by then. At this rate? At this rate? It's not knows? looking good. Yeah, it's, it's not. It's not looking great. Not. And let me tell you, I went through all of my recent hinge matches because it took a little moment and like just a break. Like sometimes I like to let them add up just to like so feel, you to can be like, just oh feel God, good about 75 yourself. 75 boys liked me. I have some pretty good hinge prompts right now. One I got from TikTok. I highly suggest it to anybody out there who needs a good hinge prompt. So you choose the one that says, teach me something about, and all you put is men. And I've screenshotted some of the responses I've got, and they're hilarious. What have you gotten? Can we get an example? I can read some if you want. I actually have a whole album. Here's a good one. This guy says, we have a brain and a penis, but only enough blood in our body to run one at a time. Facts. Gross, but facts. Like a garbage can, but can talk. Also facts. <laughs> this is a good one. You already have a dog. What more could you need to know? <laughs> that is amazing. So if you need a hinge prompt, I highly suggest it. It's just it's just funny to see what some of these men say about men. I love that. I just realized, like, now that we have a platform, I might use it for my dating life a little bit. So if anyone out there has an attractive brother who is nice, funny, liberal, 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 funny, still liberal. What else? Outdoorsy, likes to be active. That's kind of my vibe. So, you know, 
send it my way. All right. I'm going to like, I'm going to think about this. I love my guy friends, but I don't recommend any of them for dating. So I don't either. Yeah. You know. <laughs> I hope they're all listening to this and they're all gonna murder me. I know they aren't. I have a friend, a guy friend who told me that he will play our podcast and just turn the volume all the way down and just give us a listen, which is like low-key really supportive. (laughs) I was really like, I was honored. I was like, wow, that's actually really nice of you. I appreciate that. So anyways, back to what we were talking about. Biden has promised to reveal the non-binding but symbolically important 2030 goal before the Earth Day Summit opens on April 22nd, which is literally in, like, a few days. Truly, truly. Well, exciting stuff on the climate front. We'll see on Earth Day what this administration lays out. But moving on to our next story is one that has just rattled us because it is another shooting of an unarmed black man by police because Dante Wright was shot on Sunday after being pulled over for what police said was an expired car registration. Officers then discovered there was a warrant out for his arrest and an officer accidentally drew her pistol instead of her taser during a struggle with Wright who re-entered his car. The officer who can be heard on the police video shouted, holy shit, I just shot him and so this you know followed two nights of protests in the city Thirty thousand people just miles from minneapolis in a city which is already on edge because the trial of derek chauvin the former minneapolis police officer who murdered george floyd is happening so the brooklyn center minnesota police chief and the officer who fatally shot dante wright have both resigned and the shooting has now been ruled a homicide by the medical examiner so the thing is though is like i wish i could say i was surprised but i'm not exactly i don't know like how how do you even process this anymore it's just and i think it's so it's so haunting like he called his mom in the car when he's getting pulled over like if that doesn't symbolize the problem like he already knew that this could be problematic that he could die in this traffic stop i've been pulled over for a car registration and literally got fixed a ticket maybe like that's just a common traffic stop maybe you forget to put your registration sticker on your 2021 sticker and it's something that simple but literally regardless if he you know was just coming from robbing a bank does not deserve to be shot and killed and the fact that it's over a traffic stop like this is so insane and this is also like the same week that video came out of army lieutenant karen nazario who was pepper sprayed and handcuffed unnecessarily so in a traffic stop threatened with violence and death as well and it goes to show that like it doesn't matter who you are doesn't matter whether you're on video it doesn't matter like this inherent deep-rooted systematic racism is like such a problem and obviously connected to our police force particularly another day another instance of police brutality and just blatant blatant signals for police reform that we so desperately need but on that conversation there is kind of a piece of news too that is applicable here because the biden administration had plans to do an oversight committee that was kind of biden's campaign promise or oversight commission and they're kind of backing away from that now because biden's administration is saying that legislation would be better to address police officers using excessive force 
So Susan Rice, who is Biden's domestic policy advisor, said in a statement that the administration believed a commission would not be the most effective way to deliver on our top priority in this area right now. And that priority is signing a bill that has passed the House of Representatives in March, um, which bans officers from using chokeholds. It also bans officers from entering suspects' homes without knocking. It addresses qualified immunity, which, if you don't know what that means, it's a legal precedent that gives government officials, including police officers, broad protections against lawsuits. So basically, police officers who do some kind of harm to somebody don't get really prosecuted to the full extent of the law like you would as a normal citizen. And so that bill, the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act, is likely to win the 60 Senate votes it needs. Republicans do oppose provisions in the bill like eroding that qualified immunity we just talked about. So we'll see. Hopefully they can still keep that in there. But kind of good news on this front that we have some legislation finally happening. But nevertheless, just another dark week of some really awful news. He's literally only 20 years old with a child. It really is such a privilege to feel like the police can protect you, but there is a whole demographic of people that literally have to fear for their lives every time there is a police officer in their presence, which is obviously not how it's supposed to be. They're supposed to protect people, and yet we have black people in this country being murdered we have a few action items regarding you know justice for dante but also some action items for this bill we just talked about the george floyd justice in policing act we're gonna put a link to an email script in the description for this episode so if you want to email your senators and advocate for this bill hit that link and then we also have action items for justice for dante there is a link also in the description of this episode and there's tons of stuff in there you can do so there's a gofundme for his family there's a petition there's organizations that you can volunteer for donate there's an email template to the police department i sent one today there's legal resources there's protest resources and more so that will all be in the episode description please go take some action this is just it's i don't even know what to say anymore and We need everyone collectively to make sure we finally get change here. Again, links in the episode description. Go get after it. Justice for Dante. Those are our top stories for this week. I think that's like it. We have some housekeeping, obviously. Just a reminder on the Brand Ambassador program. If you're interested, we want to hear from you. Head to the link in the episode description. And sign up give us your information let us know what you'd like to see from it or what you'd like to get out of it and we will also be like reaching out probably in coming weeks with more information but yeah also dm us we're happy to answer whatever um questions you have submit your questions for climate episodes we've gotten a few so keep them coming and also like we said if there's a question that you have that's not related to the theme we're doing still send it our way. We'll try and answer it. And yeah, if you have questions even about top stories or things that are happening or even this Dante Wright story or racial justice or police reform or whatever it is, we'll definitely keep talking about this story next week and moving forward. So any questions you have, Sam and I can also answer on the show. It doesn't always have to be with the guest. So yeah, definitely submit all the questions. But is that all she wrote? I think she did. Thank you for listening. Subscribe, rate, review. 
you know the drill and we'll be talking to you guys next wednesday Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.